Hi and welcome to the Mount Hamilton Baptist Church podcast. We hope you enjoy listening to this message. For more information, go to mhbc.ca. This morning we are um, blessed to have with us uh, Ian McLennan, who is going to be preaching this morning. Now most of you would know him because Ian's a regular at our church uh, here at Mount Hamilton. He's been coming here for several years. You may not know that Ian also went to McMaster Divinity College and uh, studied there and got a Master of Divinity there several years ago. And we're just thrilled that Ian will share uh, what God has laid on his heart today. Thank you very much, Leslie. Thank you again for the opportunity to uh, allow me to share with you again this morning. Um, Now is the time of the service uh, where we are going to spend some time looking at God's Word and and try and unpack a little bit uh, about what it means for us and what it means for our lives. Um, uh, Yeah, I'm thankful again to have the privilege of sharing with you. Um, For those who don't know me as well, um, uh, my wife and I, Charlene, have been coming to Mount Hamilton for about the past five years, uh, and uh, we come together with our four children um, who are off in Sunday school now. Um, And I also sit on the board of directors. On this actually the fourth summer, I was preparing my sermon, I was... I had counted three, but it turns out this is the fourth, so I've lost track somehow. Um, But uh, yeah, I'm grateful for the opportunity to share. Um, uh, Before we start, uh, I'll read the scripture for us this morning. Um, And if you want to follow along in the Bible in front of you, uh, it's on page uh, 949. Uh, So this morning's scripture is Ephesians uh, 4, uh, verses 29 to 32. Uh, That's Ephesians 4, 29 to 32. Do not let any unwholesome talk come out of your mouths, but only what is helpful for building others up according to their needs, that it may benefit those who listen. And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God with whom you are sealed for the day of redemption. Get rid of all bitterness, rage and anger, brawling and slander, along with every form of malice. Be kind and compassionate to one another, just as in Christ, God forgave you. It's interesting, as I was looking over uh, the notes and slides from my sermon a few years ago, um, I had preached on uh, Philippians 4, uh, 13. Um, And that verse, as some of you may know, is, um, uh, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. Um, And I came across this slide, which I thought was uh, somewhat relevant, uh, given current events. Um, Now, before we continue, I just like to have a few moments of silence um, to mourn the tragic news uh, from yesterday. <laughs> okay, okay, so, so let's get on with the passage this morning. Um, this morning's scripture is actually a rather well-known passage. Um, yeah, it's quite known in the Bible. Um, and as I was working on preparing this morning, I, it was quite clear that it wasn't actually gonna be all that difficult. Um, All there was to prepare, you know, it starts off, do not let any unwholesome talk come out of your mouth. Um, So I'm like, well, that's easy. I just need to uh, go out and it'll take a lot of time and effort and do some research uh, and find a list of words that are unwholesome and should not be used, right? Um, These are words we shouldn't use in church, uh, words we shouldn't use with our friends. Um, So we just come up with a very simple list. Um, It'll be easy to do. After hours and hours of work, this is what I came up with. And sadly, as you can see, the top words on that list that I came up with 
uh, I determined weren't actually that appropriate uh, to repeat here during my sermon. Now, fortunately, all was not lost, uh, because after a little bit more research, I, I discovered that which words were or were not on this list uh, weren't actually that important. And the good news that I have for all of you here today um, is that whatever foul language or bad words that you are struggling with, there is a cure. But then I was left with the problem of, well, what do I spend the next hour talking about? <laughs> anyway, so to solve this problem, I decided to dig a bit deeper into the passage uh, and find something else that I might say about it. And so off I went to study some more. And as I dug deeper into this passage, I learned that wholesome talk just isn't about diction, as my English teacher used to say whenever somebody in the class would use uh, inappropriate language. No, as we look into this passage, we find that wholesome talk actually goes a little bit deeper than that. And this is what I'm going to look at uh, as I unpack the scripture for us this morning. Uh, if you've been at church regularly the past few months, uh, you may recall that we've been working through uh, a series called Thy Kingdom Come. Uh, and in this series, we have looked at various passages in the book of Matthew uh, that describe what the kingdom of heaven is like. We talked about what it means for what is to come for us, and we talked about what it means for us to live here and now. We often think about kingdom living in terms of what it means for me as an individual. We think about the invitation that has, I have been given. We think about the kingdom of God as the treasure that I have been given. We think about the debt, my debt, that has been wiped away. But the kingdom of God it is, is as much about what it means for us and as much about us as it is about I. And by us, I mean the church. Uh, there was a man named Leslie Newbigin who was one of the greatest missional thinkers of the 20th century. Uh, and he put actually quite a bit of thought into the relationship between the kingdom of heaven and the church. And one of his famous descriptions of the church was that of the church as being a sign, an instrument, and a foretaste of the kingdom. And so before we dive deeper into today's scripture, I want to unpack a little bit about um, what this Leslie Newbigin's description is um, and what it means. Uh, and it's important to note here that when I talk about the church, I'm not just talking about uh, our local congregation here, uh, but I'm talking about all churches uh, across the world uh, that seek out to live, live out what Christ has called them to do. So, so Nibbingen uh, has three descriptions of the church, as I said, and the first is that of a sign of the kingdom. The church is supposed to be a sign that the kingdom of heaven is coming. Uh, now, we're all familiar with various signs in the world around us. You know, we hear birds sing, uh, and that's a sign to us that uh, spring is coming and summer is coming, right? Uh, when we see dark clouds overhead, um, it's a sign that it is going to rain at some point. Uh, my gently receding hairline is a sign that maybe I'm getting older. Uh, and as scientists explore the universe around us, you know, we look for signs of life on other planets, such as water or ice or other things. 
And so it's in this way that the church is called to be a sign of the kingdom. The church is, call, is called to be something that people see it and people look at it, and it shows them and it tells them that the kingdom of God is coming. So second, the church is called to be an instrument of the kingdom. The church is supposed to be active in achieving or furthering the kingdom. It's called to change and transform the world around it in order to make it more like the kingdom of heaven. This means that the church is active in bringing about justice and bringing about mercy. The church is about feeding the poor, clothing the naked, and feeding the hungry. Uh, it gives the church its missional bent to not just be a social club or some gathering of folks uh, that come together on a Sunday morning and hang out, but a living organism that is actively making a difference in the world around us. And finally, the church is to be a foretaste of the kingdom. That is, the church is supposed to be a sample of what is coming. As much as the church can be active uh, and involved in transforming our world, this will not come to complete fulfillment until Christ comes again. Uh, but nonetheless, we are called to provide a glimpse of what the kingdom of heaven is like. We are called as the church to be an appetizer uh, so that the world can taste and see the goodness and perfection of God and taste and see that the Lord is good. And so with this description of the church in mind, uh, we come to the section in the book, come to this section in the book of Ephesians. Uh, now, as some of you may know, um, the Bible is actually a book comprised of many smaller books uh, written by various authors. Uh, and so the book of Ephesians is one of these books, uh, and it was uh, believed by many to be written by a, name, a man named Paul, um, and he was uh, an apostle of Jesus. Uh, Paul is believed uh, to have written a good chunk of the second half of the Bible, uh, which we call the New Testament, which starts at the birth of Jesus uh, and continues on from there. Uh, and the book of Ephesians is actually a letter that Paul had written. He, most of his writing are actually letters that he has sent um, as he's planted churches. Uh, he sent letters out to these various communities, uh, giving them instruction, sometimes correction, um, just helping them on their journey as churches. Uh, and actually, if you go to Turkey today, um, you can actually visit the ruins of the ancient city of Ephesus. Now, one of the overarching themes of the book of, uh, of the letter to the Philippians is that, is that of the church and what it means for Christians to live out their calling as followers of God and what it means for the church to live out its calling um, as God's uh, presence here on earth. And the passage of scripture we are focusing on today uh, is contained uh, in a section that uh, modern translators have titled uh, Instructions for Christian Living. So this specific part of the book is uh, details about you know, what it means to live out our calling as Christians. Uh, and so here Paul is providing the members of the church in Ephesus some details of what it means for them to live out the Christian life and what it means for them to be the church. And so actually, if we go back to verse 22, uh, this is a little bit before this morning's passage. It says, uh, you were taught with regard to your former way of life to put off your old self, which is being corrupted by its deceitful desires, to be made new in the attitude of your minds and put on the new self created to be like God in true righteousness and holiness. 
Paul, through this passage, mentions a number of things uh, outside of this morning's scripture. Uh, he talks about anger, he talks about you know, not stealing, and he talks about working hard, uh, and he talks about sharing with those in need. Uh, and one of the underlying thing, themes that runs through this passage uh, is Paul's emphatic concern with the unity of the church and the unity of believers. In Ephesians, the core concern is not just what it means to be faithful and holy as individuals, but what it means to be holy and faithful as a church, a community of believers that make up a local congregation. When Paul writes, do not let any unwholesome talk come out, come out of your mouths, but only what is helpful for building others up according to their needs, this concern is clear. The passage is not about checking off boxes of what words that we can and cannot say. It is not a reminder to be careful that we choose appropriate words. It is a call to be careful with our words and to use them to benefit others rather than to harm. In fact, if you think back to some of the most devastating, hurtful things that somebody has ever said to you, there's a good chance that it does not continue, contain any foul language at all. Um, so listen to some of these insults, for example. Um, you may recognize some of them. You know, you are a classic example of the inverse ratio between the size of the mouth and the size of the brain. Why you stuck up half-witted, scruffy-looking nerve herder. Your heart is full of unwashed socks. Your soul is full of gunk. The three words that best describe you are as follows, and I quote, stink, stank, stunk. I do desire we may be better strangers. Some cause happiness wherever they go, others whenever they go. <laughs> as these have demonstrated, you know, I for one, and I'm sure many of you as well, um, I'm fully confident in my ability to use my words to hurt and to harm without resorting to any sort of profanity at all. And in reality, cutting out a small, finite list of words from our vocabulary is actually far easier than being thoughtful and mindful of what we say and how we act towards others. The deep challenge here is generally wanting what is best for others. It's not about transforming our words, it's about transforming our hearts and transforming our lives to follow Christ. It is no accident, I think, that verse 29 talks about using our words to benefit those who listen. And verse 31 says, to get rid of all bitterness, rage and anger, brawling and slander, along with every form of malice. As we reflect on these words, bitterness, rage, anger, many of these things are heart things. They're not just actions that we have, it's, it's signs of what dwells inside of us and signs that, of the things that drive us and make us who we are things that live inside of us and taint the words that come out of us. We cannot live out verse 29 of having wholesome talk unless we live out verse 31. If we foster bitterness, if we foster rage and anger, we will not be able to use our words for the benefit of others. If we let ourselves become consumed with malice, with slander and with brawling, it inevitably bubbles up and comes out of our mouth. 
Matthew wrote in his gospel, what goes into someone's mouth does not defile them, but what comes out of their mouth is what defiles them. The point here is that it just isn't just what we say that defiles us, but what we say is a sign of what we are harboring inside. How often is it that we let deep-seated bitterness, rage, and anger destroy our relationships? How often do we let these things shape and change the way that we see the world and the way that we interact with people? We've all been hurt. We've all been wronged. We've all had terrible things that have happened to us in our lives. Perhaps you were betrayed by a close friend. Maybe you were passed over for a promotion that should have been yours. Maybe your parents favored one of your siblings over you. Maybe you've had lies or vicious rumors that have been spread about you. Or maybe you were unfairly accused of something you did not do. Maybe somebody you trusted stole or lied to you. I don't know what your story of hurt is, but we all have them. I have mine. And I can tell you how easy it is to let these stories of hurt and stories of pain that have been inflicted on us take root in our lives and grow into bitterness, to grow into rage, and to grow into consuming anger. To be clear here, Paul is not saying that anger is a sin. There are certain things in our lives that should make us angry. There are things in this world that we should be mad about. But if we want to continue our relationships with each other and grow and deepen them, if we want to live out our calling as followers of Christ and the, our calling to be the church, we must not let this anger fester inside of us and become bitterness. It feels sometimes that the world that we live in is becoming increasingly divided. It feels like we are becoming increasingly fixated on putting people down, increasingly focused on making people feel small. We idolize revenge. We take great relish in getting back at people. We are in love with the idea of karma, even though that is not our faith, with this idea that people will get what is coming to them. We love it when we see people put in their place. We savor over stories of people getting their just desserts. The desire to see people's downfall because it satisfies our desire to see justice will ultimately only make things worse. When we focus all of our energy on revenge and retaliation, it results in more conflict, it results in more division, and it results in more strife. And ultimately, it pulls us away from God, and it pulls us away from following the calling he has put onto our lives. As I was writing this, I could hear in the background my children arguing and fighting in the other room. So-and-so did this. Mommy, do this. He started it. She started it. It's not fair that he's allowed to do this. Why can't I do that? Why don't I get that? So much time is spent justifying why we are right, arguing and fighting over you know, who gets what. And you just stand back and, and look at them and you can tell that they're making each other miserable. It makes all of us miserable. It has the same effect on our relationships and it has the same effects on the church. It breeds division, it breeds separateness, it breeds a church in which no sane person would want to be a part of. If we allow ourselves to be fueled by our bitterness, by our rage and our resentment, it will ruin our relationships and it will ruin our communities. As followers of Jesus, we have been called out of this vicious cycle of putting each other down, of getting back at each other, 
As a church, we've been called out of this bitterness and rage. But what is the alternative? As we continue to verse, to verse 32, um, we read Paul's words. Be kind and compassionate to one another, forgiving each other, just as in Christ God forgave you. Here we see Paul calling us, as Christ calls us, to be people that are marked by kindness, to be people who are marked by compassion, and people who are marked by forgiveness. This isn't to say that we should be pushovers. This isn't to say that we should not stand up for what is right. But we should not let our desire to be right, our need to be vindicated, our need to be seen as winning, get in the way of our ability to be kindness and to be understanding and to be forgiving. I've been wrong. Uh, some of you are probably going to be shocked about what I'm going to say, so just to warn you here. Um, I've been wrong many times in my life. Shocking, right? So, and sometimes, uh, sometimes when I've been wrong, um, it has felt like people have gone out of their way to point out how stupid I was or to demonstrate how much of a fool that I was. And not to say that I wasn't stupid sometimes and not to say that I wasn't being a fool. But when confronted like this, my impulse is to double down and to dig in, to, you know, in, in my stubbornness to hold my position. How dare they make me look like a fool in front of others, I think. And this just starts and kicks off this vicious cycle of up-escalating disagreement and conflict. Uh, it does nothing to change my mind. It does no nothing to help me see uh, that I actually was wrong. Um, it just makes me dig in and double down. But other times, people have challenged me gently and kindly. And not only did I learn the truth, but it has also deepened friendships. Not only have I come around on my position, but the disarming approach has created a space to learn and to, and to discover and grow without fear and ridicule and shame. I see this in the way we've been, uh, churches have been and I have been in my life. You know, oftentimes uh, believers will set out to spread the gospel by hitting people over the head with it. We've gone out of our way to make it known how sinful people are. We make intellectual arguments trying to show people how stupid that they are. And we tell them, you know, you're awful people and there's no redemption for you. Often our efforts to tell people about the grace of God are far from graceful. What I have learned in my life and what we learn from this passage is that if we want to impact and change people around us, we must do it out of our desire for their benefit rather than for our own selfish gain. If we want people to be transformed by the gospel, we must do it because we genuinely want them to experience uh, and feel God's love and not because of our desire for vindication or a desire to be proved right or a desire to win. And I believe that if we fill our hearts with kindness, forgiveness, and compassion, as Paul calls us to here, then the words that come out of our mouths will be filled with grace. And as we do this, as believers and as the church, we live out our call to be a sign, an instrument, and a foretaste of the kingdom. When we as our ch a church community is marked by forgiveness, by kindness and grace, we signal to those who experience our fellowship that God's kingdom of co is coming. 
when these things mark us, when kindness, compassion, and forgiveness dwell inside of our lives, they are contagious. When we have been shown kindness and compassion and forgiveness, it breaks the cycle. It is much harder to respond to kindness with bitterness and with rage. When we respond to the world around us with grace and with humility instead of bitterness and rage, we, become, we can become instruments of God's grace and work to bring about his kingdom here on earth. As we fill our mouths with words of kindness, compassion, and forgiveness, we, the church, become a foretaste of the kingdom. As we are transformed by God's grace, the church becomes a place where people can experience a small taste of what the kingdom of heaven is like. As Paul finishes this passage, he uses these words, just as in Christ, God forgave you. So often we try to justify our bitterness, our rage, and our anger. You do not understand what I've been through, we tell ourselves. But we come up with rationale as to why we are justified in our brawling and in our slander. We find excuses to make our malicious thoughts, our intents, and our actions justifiable. But all these things amount to a rejection of the great forgiveness that Christ has given to us. All these reject the deep and undeserved mercy that God has given and bestowed upon our lives. Jesus had every reason to be bitter, to be resentful, and to be filled with rage from the way that he was treated. Yet in his mercy, he has forgiven us and he has forgiven all. In the same way, we are called to live lives of kindness, forgiveness, and compassion. These words, do not let any unwholesome talk come out of your mouths, but only what is helpful for building others up according to their needs, so that it may benefit those who listen. Let us fill our hearts with love and fill our hearts with grace and mercy and help us to look at the other not as enemies, but as people who deeply need God's love. Let us let go of the resentment and anger that we often feel, that often rules our lives. Let us let our words and our lives and our relationships serve as a sign of the truth and the goodness of the gospel, the good news of Christ's resurrection. And let us transform the world around us with our tongues, that the kingdom of heaven might be realized here on earth. Let our words and our conversations be an outflowing of love and grace and kindness that well deep inside of our souls that we might be a foretaste of the kingdom that is to come. Let me pray for us. Gracious God, we thank you for the undeserved grace and mercy and kindness that you've given to us. God, we come seeking uh, to be filled with uh, this mercy and love that um, you have called us to. Uh, we pray that as a church um, that you would guide us in your paths and guide us in our steps. Help us to um, not look down on others, but to be filled with your grace and filled with your love. And so um, transform us, Lord God. Transform us from our bitterness and our rage and our anger. Um, and make us the new people that you have called us to be. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.